find your seats, I'd ask that you take God's Word in your hands. And while you're doing that, the kids can be dismissed uh, to children's worship as we continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, speaking about this great God, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, this man at work who came to be one of us so that he could save a people unto himself. And as you turn in your Bibles, we'll be finding ourselves uh, today in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through chapter 6, verse 6. <clears throat> and as you're turning there in your Bibles, make sure you <clears throat> excuse me, uh, grab your outline insert that you can take some notes as we uh, look to this great passage uh, together. As a way of introduction, instead of a, uh, a simple anecdote or a story to get us thinking on a particular theme, I want to do some reminding and some reflection. We've been a couple months in this uh, book, of, uh, book of Mark, this gospel, and I want to remind us of a couple things this morning. The first one is, and it's been brought to my attention a couple different times by people, why are we moving so quickly through the gospel of Mark? Why not do what we normally do, and that is take smaller portions of Scripture and uh, deal with them uh, little by little to understand the full essence of what's going on? We have an answer for that, and one that I think is suitable uh, for us as a church. The Gospel of Mark is a book that is action-packed. It is fast-paced. It is moving. And we'll learn even today that Mark has a bit, if you will, of spiritual ADD. He moves from one episode quickly to another episode, and the elders in the preaching team desire to look at Mark through those glasses, through that lens of trying to stay true to the gospel in its fast-paced nature. Another thing that we want to make sure that we did is look at the gospel of Mark because it is short many times on particular pieces of information or detail. We wanted to stay within the gospel of Mark, not do too much cross-referencing, as important as that may be to any study of scripture. We wanted to see Jesus through Mark's words and, of course, through Peter's eyes, the one that Mark was hearing from about the first person eyewitness account that Peter saw of Jesus. And so we don't do a lot of going to other passages. Of course, Matthew and, of course, Luke are very detailed, and even in this passage, uh, with much more information. The other thing I want to remind us of is this is not the last time we'll be in this gospel. I'm looking forward to a long pastorate here. And I'm hoping that when I am 40, 50, and all of you are 40 and 50, we'll be coming back to this gospel because it's not good enough for us to study the word of God in a particular passage once, but to go over it again and again. This is the reminder that I have, and now some reflection this morning. We're a third of the way through. We'll be done right around the Memorial Day holiday with this great gospel. And it's important that we reflect on a couple things, because if we don't, we can lose sight of what has transpired. We can lose sight of what is going on. Just like every other gospel, Mark is clear that his sole theme and his sole purpose is that the centerpiece of this book be the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's his goal, that's his aim, and it's our desire to do the same. 
This is seen if you were to turn back to Mark chapter 1, where it says this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is seen at the end when Jesus sends out his disciples, and it says after his resurrection that they went out and preached to everyone everywhere. The good news. But why do we need good news? Why in this world do we need to have news that comes from heaven that would be good? Don't we live good lives? Don't we have good things? Well, Scripture makes it abundantly clear, brothers and sisters, that we have lives full of bad news. We have lives that, because of sin, are leading us down a road to destruction. And since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, man has been searching out for a hero. One who would come and save us from our sins. And the Gospel of Mark has brought us through a journey. Because that hero who was uh, uh, prophesied by the prophets, who was announced by John the Baptist, who was affirmed by the Father in heaven at the baptism of Jesus Christ, is that hero. And we have been reminded over and over again in our study up to this point that we need a hero. We come in grip, into contact with the grips of leprosy early in this book. A man who has a disease that there is no cure. A man that is unclean as a result of this disease. And he needs a hero. We learn about a paralytic man who is disabled. A man who can't do anything about the condition that he has. He's in trouble. He needed a hero. We learned just last week about the disciples who find themselves in a time of great distress. They have a storm in their life, a physical storm, one that could have easily taken their life. The disciples needed a hero. We come today to a man whose daughter is on her deathbed and who eventually dies. And Jairus, the synagogue ruler, comes to Jesus because he needs a hero. And there's this woman, an obscure woman, we don't know her name, but she comes to Jesus with one of the most private struggles that anyone could have. And she had gone to all of the places in the world, but what we will learn today is that she found her hero. If there's anything that you are able to glean this morning, I want you to know that that hero's name is Jesus Christ. He takes away our disease. He saves us in our times of distress. Even though we are spiritually disabled, in fact, dead to deal with the issue of sin, Jesus came that we may have life. But how did he do that? Before I even get into an outline this morning, and I want to, and time is my enemy this morning, I want to address a couple things about this hero that I see. In your outlines, I want you to write down just for a couple moments uh, two important principles that I see in the life and ministry of Jesus. The text tells us, and I'll read it here uh, more, but it says, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. We have a hero, and the people of Jesus' day knew he was a hero. They knew he was a man of greatness, 
And so everywhere where Jesus turned, a crowd would gather. But in our world and culture, when a person meets such popularity and such notoriety and becomes such an amazing figure in public life, we begin to see that person back away from public life. In our culture, of course, in Hollywood and through uh, the uh, lives of sports stars, we see them live behind gated gates in their community. The only pictures we may get is them through the lens of the paparazzi. When you, when you see them in public, you see them all around handlers, in essence creating a wall of separation between you and their greatness. Jesus Christ, the greatest man to have ever lived because he is the son of God, broke every mold when it came to a figure of greatness. Jesus went about, not in seclusion, not out of the uh, view of public, but one of the first things I see about Jesus is he was entirely accessible. Write that in your outlines. It's important we remember that. He was accessible. The crowd was around him. One of the greatest griefs that I know of as a pastor is that it's one thing for us to make superstars out of public figures, politicians, musicians, movie stars, and athletes. But we do this with our pastors. A couple years ago, the pastors of this church went to a conference where some large church pastors were at. And we were walking in the hallway, and one of the, those, if you will, superstar, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but well-known pastors was walking uh, towards us, and we simply wanted to share a word of thanks and a greeting to them. This pastor has made a great impact in the lives of many of our pastors here. And very quickly, as we stuck out our hand, other men came around and said, I'm sorry, he's too busy, we've got to go. And I look at that, and I'm so thankful that my shepherd, Jesus Christ, did not do that. He had the crowd around him. I want you to understand that this hero, this Jesus whom we worship and praise, this Jesus who is so great that we've sung about, this Jesus who is in control of all things is accessible to you and to me. He spent his entire ministry in public. We've seen him in the book of Mark on hillsides and in homes, on highways and byways of the Judean countryside, and even along the seashore. Occasionally taking a moment for some communion with his heavenly Father, we see that Jesus is drawn to people. Not just to people that are important in our world's definition, but people like you and me. You see, this is a reminder for us as a church. We worship and praise the name of Jesus. He is our model. He is our pattern. And what we need to be careful with as a congregation, especially as the church continues to grow, that we never make our ministry about programs, but about people. You name me one program Jesus started, and I will tell you, you've got the greater point. But I can show you person after person after person 
that Jesus interacted with. Notice the second thing I want you to see. As we look at Jesus' interaction with the crowd, he was available. You say, Tim, accessible, available, they're the same thing. No, they're not. Jesus was accessible. People could see him. People could touch him. People could hear his voice. They could be in the same room as Jesus. But when Jesus went deeper into his relationship with people, he made himself available. I want you to understand that the crowd hounded Jesus. They crushed in on him. They restricted his movement. They restricted, even earlier in our text, they restricted his ability even to have a meal. The crowd was a crowd that was selfish. It had demands. And from a human perspective, it was a complete and utter nuisance to a man who had come to save people from their sin. But yet Jesus made himself available People could come and have contact with him, but even greater than that, Jesus made himself available so that we could be a part of him sacrificing of himself, of his time, of his energy, of his effort. We see today that Jesus is willing to stop whatever he is doing to help someone in need. He's willing to give of himself, not just with people of greatness, but people who find themselves in the abyss of life. Jesus was available. And because Jesus is accessible, and because Jesus is available, we have, through the uh, wonderful miracle of the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of that Holy Spirit, to mark a opportunity to read of Christ's accessibility and availability to three different types of people this morning. Jairus, Jairus um, the woman with the issue of blood, and Jesus' group, group, group of people in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And you would think that a hero who's made himself accessible, who's made himself available, that everybody would want him. But we know, brothers and sisters, that the deceitfulness of sin blinds us sometimes. And by the gift of faith, some will come to the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, while still others will turn and reject him. So let's look at this hero. So I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word as we look at Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through chapter 6, verse 6. And let's read about our hero, our Savior, and our Lord. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her, that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Do you see the accessibility? Do you see the availability? A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she had heard about Jesus... She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, 
Jesus realized the power had go- that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? By the way, if I forget to say this, Jesus isn't asking this because he doesn't know. Jesus knows everything. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. Now he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion, people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all the commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he had put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him, and they went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus then left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogues, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What is this wisdom that has been given him, that even he does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you this morning because you are, in fact, that hero. You are our Savior. You are our Lord. And Lord, we are so thankful for the testimony in your scriptures that speak to who you are. You came, the God of all greatness and all majesty, to be one of us and not to sit in some ivory tower looking down on your subjects as you have every right to do. But you came and you lived among us and you encountered us And you engaged with us. And you allowed us to experience you, to touch you, to hear your voice, and to see your mighty works at hand. Oh, Lord, I pray that through the eyes of faith, we may be able to do the same. Open our hearts and mind that you are not far away once again, but you are still close. You have the Holy Spirit residing in us. And because of that, You say we can do greater and mightier things. So, Lord, I pray that we would search out those things 
so that we can glory in you all the more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at this text, there's a couple things that I want to address uh, this morning that I think are important. We've been doing a lot of running back and forth with Jesus. Jesus is on one side of the lake and then he's on the other. And we need to understand where Jesus is at and what Jesus has been doing. So we need to have an idea of where Jesus has been. Jesus' first year to year and a half, Jesus spends his time around the Sea of Galilee. He finds himself, of course, you see Nazareth there on your left. Nazareth is where Jesus' hometown was. But Jesus has gone around, and every time we see him on the seashore, he is on the Sea of Galilee. And what he has done is gone from, if you will, from the west to the east on both sides of the Sea of Galilee. Now we know that he has just finished up on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, healing uh, the demoniac who had many demons, a legion of demons in him. And the text tells us in verse 21 that now they move their way back. So let's go ahead and get a little, uh, well, there we, we've got it, I'm sorry. Uh, we see that now he is back on the west side of the Sea of Galilee and he'll make his way into chapter 6 down to Nazareth. We know that, of course, many have wondered, where was the ten cities, the Decapolis? This is down on the east side where Jesus has sent the demoniac in that way. Of course, you can see up at the very top there, the Sea of Galilee. This isn't a made-up place. This is in northern Israel. And, of course, you can see Jerusalem farther down in the center of the map, of course, near the Dead Sea. So this is where we've got Jesus. He's up north. This is where he does the majority of his ministry in the first year to year and a half. And the text tells us that a crowd is around him. And among, amongst the crowd comes a man, a man of high standing. And we see within this man a desperate faith from a respected man. Because Jesus was accessible, because he was available, verse 22 tells us, that a synagogue ruler comes to him. A synagogue ruler in that day could have meant that he was a Pharisee, but probably not. What a synagogue ruler was, was one who was a man who was so respected, a man of such honor that he had been given the task of overseeing the synagogue, the public place of worship for the Jewish people. So his job was to make sure that the synagogue was kept orderly, that the tithes and offerings were distributed and where they needed to go, and that the public times of worship would be times of order and reverence. Jairus was his name. And this man, no doubt, was a man of means and a man of great respect. But amidst all of that, he comes to Jesus, not in a dignified way, but in a desperate way way. And what causes this desperation? Look at verse 23 with me for a moment. Verse 23, starting in verse 22 says, then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. Why would he do that? The answer is there in 23, my little daughter is dying. You see, the desperation involved an impending death. I want you to imagine for a moment what Jairus must have been thinking. Here is a man who had been serving his God, no doubt had been a loving father and husband. We get no idea that he isn't anything like that. And imagine for a moment before he gets to Jesus, 
the scene that must have been taking place in Jairus' home. His wife tells him early on, our daughter is sick. And instead of like every other sickness that parents, as we endure with our children, the sickness isn't getting any better. In fact, it's getting worse. And now there's fear that she may no longer recover from it. And I wonder when the moment was, as they were looking over his daughter's bed, where his wife may have turned to him and said, do something. She can't die. You've got to help her. We've got to do something. And I wonder if even before seeing Jesus, he went and brought, like a good father, some people of medicine who may be able to help. And at some point it says, within that ordeal, that Jairus runs out of the home and goes on an all-out search for Jesus. Jairus, this respected man, has one thing on his mind, to find Jesus and bring Jesus in his time of desperation. Can I tell you something? Times of desperation bring great clarity to us as people, don't they? It's amazing how our priorities change, how our schedules change, when the bad news comes on that random weekday. And this is exactly what happens in Jairus' life. I can't imagine that Jairus is running to look for Jesus and is thinking about what he has to do at work, where he's going to go on vacation during the holidays that year. His only thought is, I need Jesus, and I need Jesus now. Now, at this point, we don't know what kind of spiritual life Jairus has, but what an indictment for many of us who call ourselves Christians that the last thing we think about in our times of desperation are Jesus and how he might be involved. If you're like me, when things come up, I look to people. I look to things like information. I put trust in credit cards and finances. But Jairus reminds us that in our times of desperation, we need to get to Jesus. Notice also that he doesn't stop looking for Jesus until he finds him. We get this idea that Jesus is right over there. I'll go see Jesus. We get the idea that Jesus is just simply a walk away. But most scholars believe that uh, Jairus came from Capernaum. And he headed to the seashore knowing that he had heard the crowd had seen Jesus there. And he doesn't stop until he finds him. Notice the humble demeanor that Jairus shows. In verse 22, he sees Jesus and he falls down to his knees. And he pleads earnestly with him. I want you to understand this is the religious leader of the day. And no doubt Jairus' friends and colleagues had come to the conclusion that Jesus was bad. Many of his colleagues from Jerusalem had come up north and had said a couple chapters beforehand that Jesus wasn't empowered by God, but he was empowered by the devil. Remember that? That's where you're getting your power from. And so the only dialogue that Jairus should have had as a good synagogue ruler was to confront Jesus and condemn him for blasphemy. That was his job as a synagogue ruler, to uphold the religious establishment. But what does Jairus do? He goes low. Trials have a way, my friends, of changing our perspective. 
They have a way of making us really uh, feel small and giving us a true identity of who we are. Removing all levels of pride and airs of who we are. In fact, and I won't add a lot to this because Matthew does bring a lot of their uh, descriptions and information to it, but I will say this because it's helpful. Matthew says in his gospel that when he knelt down before Jesus, he worshipped him. And I think that's important because I think at this point, Jairus has come to the understanding that because he is expecting something of such greatness from Jesus, that in his heart he has identified Jesus as the one and true Messiah. How could he request something like this without believing it in his heart? And so notice, there's a persistent desire. A persistent desire. Verse 23, Jairus pleads earnestly. I wonder what that may have been like. Can I tell you what it would sound like if Tim was enduring something like this? Come quickly! My child is dying! The commotion he must have made. Jesus, I have found you. Come, I know you've done this before. I've heard and maybe even seen, he had seen with his own eyes. The people that had been paralyzed who now were walking. The leper whose skin was falling off now who was made whole. Jesus, you, I need you, I need you, come right away. Brothers and sisters, let us understand that when we need Jesus, we need to go to him persistently and urgently. Not because we have to expect, uh, try to wake him out of his sleep, but because we need to recognize our utter dependence on the Lord of the universe. We just sang that this morning. Lord, I need you. And we sing it with our Sunday morning best on, Lord, I need you. I need you. No, brothers and sisters, we need Jesus. One moment without Jesus and we are done. We need him. And Jairus reminds us that we need him like nothing else in this world. What joy must have overtaken Jairus when Jesus says to him in verse 24, yes, I will go with you. His answer, his hero, he's coming. Everything will be okay. But this is where Mark makes it hard to preach these sermons. Because it would be great just to say, okay, now let's look at how he heals the girl. But Mark says, but wait a minute. Before we go any farther, something else happened. As Jesus was heading to Jairus' house, he says there was a woman now there's a crowd, this crowd is pressing in on Jesus. Many believe the crowd could have been hundreds, even thousands of people. This is not just a couple dozen people around him. But this is a large crowd of people who are assembled around him. And we are told that as they're heading to Jairus' house, we see this woman quietly, almost skittishly, work her way to Jesus. Why would she do this? Because she's showing a determined faith of one who is rejected. Write that in your outlines. Because we see in this woman, a rejected woman with a determined faith. Mark says there's a hiatus that takes place in Jesus' travels. And he stops 
when he feels the presence of someone touching his clothes. Now, why would a woman so quietly wanting to meet Jesus, why would she be so quiet in her approach to Jesus? We see the reason for that in her condition. In her condition. The scripture tells us, let's look there. It says in verse 25, that a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. I don't know the significance of it, and I don't want to make more of it, but we are told later on in the text that the daughter of Jairus was how many years old? 12. Now, we could start a whole denomination, the Church of Twelves, but we won't. But I see that as something very interesting. It's one of those questions we can ask Jesus when we get to heaven. There's some significance to that. But this woman had an issue of blood. Most scholars believe that she had some sort of hemorrhage or some sort of condition that came as a result of abnormally painful and ongoing menstrual bleeding. Talk about something you don't want to talk about. Talk about something you want to keep private. And while that would have been painful, this condition was one that would keep her outside of the camp or the city of people. According to, and write this down, Leviticus 15, verses 19 through 27, there were laws according to the law of Moses that commanded this woman with an issue of blood to remain outside the city because she was unclean. Now before you begin to say, what in the world, why would you have that kind of law? Let's be reminded that in the first century and centuries beforehand, that this issue that the woman had, in fact, any kind of uh, discharge from a human being would be one that could bring all kinds of bacteria and all kinds of illness into a city of people. And that God's reasoning, uh, one of his reasonings, one very practical reason for the Mosaic law is to keep the people of God healthy and vital. And so this woman had very little contact with her family and friends, she probably uh, had uh, very few opportunities to engage in public life because when she did, she would have to announce throughout the public way, unclean, 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 and give opportunity to the people around her to make a way so that they could get out of her way so they would not be in contact with her. And here's this woman under the radar finding her way into the crowd no doubt touching all kinds of people trying to get to Jesus. This condition didn't just bring social pain and suffering, but notice in verse 26 that she pursues all types of remedies. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Understand that what we see in this text is that this woman has been dealing with this for 12 years and she's been going to doctor after doctor after doctor and it isn't getting better. But a deeper understanding of what happened in first century medicine, some of the things that they would have done for this disorder would have caused great pain, even greater pain than the disorder itself. And she had spent all that she had on the, look, on the search for the cure. And it says, not only did she not find the cure, but it got worse. Talk about a woman of utter desperation again. The text tells us that we have two people. And there's a great contrast. One is a man, 
one is a woman. One is respected, one is rejected. Both have needs and both of them have nowhere to turn. One comes publicly, the other one privately. They're completely different. And yet we see Jesus meet both of them right where they're at. I would be remiss not to remind us, people, that the ground on the cro- at the cross is level for all people. And you may think, I'm too dirty for Jesus. Jesus says through his encounter with the woman, no matter how dirty you are, I can make you clean. No matter how respected you may feel that you are, no matter how honored you may be amongst people, God reminds you that you are a sinner in need of grace. And that's what we see. And so this woman works her way to Jesus. She touches his clothes. And what takes place? We see a cure. We see that just by the mere touching of a garment, that she's healed. Now some have asked as a result of their small group study, how could this be? How could Jesus allow for power to leave him by simply the touching of a person? Why didn't that happen with anybody else in the crowd? It's a mystery. It's a mystery to understand how God's power and a person's faith works together. Let us understand this, that God has the power to save and to heal. But there's a part that we have. And it's a part that I don't understand because without the grace of God, I would not have the eyes of faith even to see it. But this woman knew if I touched Jesus, I could be healed. And as a result of that, she is. Now I would say, and I want to make this abundantly clear, this is not a normative way of healing for Jesus. It doesn't happen over time, but it happened instantaneously. And Jesus cries out, wanting to know who touched him. Again, not because he doesn't know, but because he wants to bring the woman out of her place of darkness, out of her place of secrecy. It's very similar to God, the Father's words of Adam when he was walking through the garden after the first couple sinned in the Garden of Eden. Adam, where are you? God didn't need a GPS to find him. He wanted Adam to declare himself. And likewise, this woman in Jesus' day to do the same. Notice there's a confession that comes. And the confession is first of the woman, and then there's a confession by Jesus. In verse 33, it says, Then the woman, knowing what happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She confesses. That had to be a scary thing. You're walking with this rabbi, this rabbi who has supernatural power. You're an unclean woman. The very touching of your hand to his garment would make him ceremonially unclean for seven days. Because of that, one of the punishments could be as much as stoning the woman to death. And Jesus turns around and he says, who touched me? And the woman has to identify herself. I don't want to over-spiritualize this, brothers and sisters, but when Jesus comes calling, we can't sit in a group of people and say, yeah, we believe. We have to identify ourselves and say, yes, it is I who come to you by faith. 
And the woman confesses that to him. And notice what Jesus says. He confesses something back to her in a way of an affirmation. Daughter, there's a word of endearment here. Your faith has healed you. Other translations literally, your faith has saved you. This woman just didn't have a physical healing, but an even greater healing of her spiritual well-being. He says, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Here we see the woman healed. And Mark doesn't sit there. And I would love to sit there and just spend some time focusing in on that. But notice what happens. Right after that, while Jesus is still speaking, we move along because Mark wants to keep us moving here. And Mark says that men come and interrupt this moment between this woman and Jesus, and they say, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Oh, what must have been going on in Jairus' mind? Jairus had the Savior. He had found his hero. He had found the answer to his problem, and that woman had gotten in the way. I wonder what thoughts of anger might have filled my heart had I heard that one of my children had died as a result of a postponement of Jesus getting there. But this is why we love Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't work by human timetables and time frames. And it tells us then that amidst that, Jairus is given the words. He says, don't be afraid in verse 36. Just believe. C.S. Lewis says that God whispers in our pleasures. Hear me. He whispers in our pleasures, but shouts in our pains. I want you to hear that because, brothers and sisters, we go into a new year. We finished a great year. It's been a wonderful year looking back. But let me tell you something. In this year, we will have troubles. In this year, some of us will hear the words that Jairus, God forbid, heard. We have lost someone. That a tragedy has taken place. And Jesus says to us, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Faith is being certain of things hoped for and being certain of things unseen, right? And God wants us to embrace that this morning. It's amidst this that we see an example of patience and perseverance on the part of Jairus. Nowhere in any of the Gospels do we see Jairus come up with a commotion, that he becomes angry, that he becomes almost uh, to the point of blaming God. None of that is there. And amidst this faithfulness and patience in times of trial, Jesus does the impossible. He goes to Jairus' house. He says, I only want a handful of people to go. And he did that. And then they, as they go into the house and into the bedroom of Jairus' daughter, they see that she is dead. Now, Jesus knows better, not that she isn't dead, but Jesus recognizes that death to him is simply just sleep, just a simple siesta. And so Jesus then does the impossible, something that he hasn't done up to this point in Mark's narrative, and that is he raises her from the dead. Two examples of faith. And i got to get moving here, so 
let me be quick with this. Two examples of faith. And we would think that every time someone encounters Jesus, because of the good that Jesus does, because of the truths that he teaches, that we would all be like Jairus. We would all be like the woman with the issue of blood. But that's not the case, because Mark quickly then moves to chapter 6. And Jesus comes back into his hometown. And where you would think that Jesus, amidst all of this, he's raised people from the dead, he's healed people, he's taught with authority and conviction that Jesus would come into Nazareth, his hometown, and be given the keys to the city. But he's not. And brothers and sisters, we are reminded that just like Jesus, when we live for him, there will be persecution. When we live for him, there will be slander. When we live for him, there will be people who will mock us, mock us and will be full of scorn. Here's the thing that I want you to understand. Mark over and over again deals with the issue of the crowd. We've talked about this in our study before. The crowd was one that loved the show. Look, when he goes to Nazareth in chapter 6, it says that, that when they heard him teach in the synagogue in verse 2, Many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom behind the, that has been given to him? That he even does miracles. They're amazed. And there's a lot of people who love the show of what Jesus is doing. They love to see the exciting things that he's done. And, and I might add this morning that some of you this morning, even though you're in the house of God, are here for a show. You're here to hear the music. You're here to listen to some teaching, but at the end of the day, you sit amongst a group of people, and when you leave, there is no change of you as an individual. This is what we see in the life of the people of Nazareth. They had become so familiar with Jesus. They knew the stories. They had heard his sermons. They enjoyed all that they did, but they had never turned to him. Notice what it says that they did. They begin to question Jesus in verses 3 through 5. And they say, "Isn't we know this guy. We know his family. Aren't these his brothers? Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this his sisters? And it says they took offense at him. That word offense literally is the Greek word scandalizomai. It's where we get scandal. They were scandalized by him. They were offended. Who does this guy think he is? And let me tell you something. If you want to know if you're a part of the crowd, when Jesus starts talking, do you say, yes, Jesus, or do you begin to say, who do you think you are, Jesus, to do this? And you know where that happens most? Is in times of trials. In times of trials, we have a choice. To either say, Lord, you give and take away, but blessed be the name of the Lord, or who do you think you are, God? We have a choice in that. And the choice is, are we going to worship and honor God for who he is? Or are we going to laugh with scorn? They laughed at him. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Are you kidding? Man, you're crazy. Notice in verse 38, it says that when Jesus went to the house of Jairus, there was a commotion. People are crying. They're wailing. And Jesus says, why all the commotion? I'm about to move. I'm about to act. And their response is they laugh at him. They laugh at him. And as a result of that, 
I got a little turned around here. They laughed with scorn there, and then they loathed the Savior. They were offended by him. They were offended by him. And so we have in this text three types of people. We have a desperate person, we have a determined person, and we have a spiritually dead person. And there are four things, I've got to close this out, but there are four things that I want us to think about as we leave this place amidst this scripture. And the first one has to do in your times of trouble, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop letting obstacles get into your way and run to Jesus. Run to Jesus and get to close to him as you can. Let me say that again. You call yourself a believer. When you come to times of trial, don't sit at your house and feel sorry for yourself. Don't blame God. And don't let obstacles get in the way. But with faith, you run to Jesus and you get as close to him as you can. That's your job. That's what we need to learn. Number two, it's easy for us in times of trouble to let circumstances, to look at our circumstances and to lose hope. It's in these moments, brothers and sisters, that we must keep our eyes on Jesus and keep believing. Some of us are going to endure some real trials and struggles, times of great tribulation this year. And we need to be reminded to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Number three, when you step out in faith, when you step out for Christ, be ready for opposition. Jesus said, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Those are our words for the believers in our midst. But I also want to speak to those who maybe are a part of a crowd, who are watching Jesus and are here for many different reasons, and I don't condemn you, but let me share something with you. Jesus is near. And Jesus won't always be near. And if Jesus is near, then our obligation is to draw near to him. And if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, then today is the day. He is the one who is your hero. He is the one who can save you from all your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let me tell you something. The only time it says in a negative way that Jesus was amazed is in this text. He was amazed at their unbelief. I'll tell you something. I don't want Jesus to look at me and be amazed at my unbelief. And the reason for his amazement of unbelief was that he had poured out blessing upon blessing. He had spoken truth in a time of great lies and great darkness. And Jesus is here. He's presented himself to the people and says, all you have to do is believe. And they turned away from him. Brothers, it is a fearful thing to turn away from the living God. And if you walk out of this place and leave this place, we are not afforded tomorrow because no man knows what a day might bring. Don't be like the people of Nazareth who turned a blind eye 
and their blind and deaf ears away from God. Because today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, wow, what a passage. A passage where we see you interact with your creation in a way that's unbelievable. You meet us right where we're at. You address the issues that are so important to us. And you do it at your expense. Because, Lord, we know that your healing wasn't something you just did with a magic wand, but that healing came through the power of the shed blood that you gave to us on the cross. Lord, let us be mindful of that this morning. It cost you a great deal to be available and accessible, to meet each of these people where they were at. And Lord, because of that, a response is needed. And our response is to come to you in faith and to bow the knee and worship you. Lord, anything else is an all-out rejection. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone today who has never bowed the knee to Jesus, that today would be the day that they would grab the person next to them, that they would come and talk to me or one of the other pastors, that they would go to the Welcome Center and seek more about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of you, Jesus, who came to a world of darkness and sin and brought life in all abundance. Oh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to study your word. Now we give our time now over to you to more study and more fellowship so that we may be edified and built up, so that we may leave this place today and start a new week with you on the throne of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.